Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Every weekend, we continue our celebration of food and the role it plays in our lives on this show. I hope you'll tune in to explore everything we love about delicious dishes, righteous recipes, food pros, and decadent tastes. Because I'm all about the culture, the science, the history, and the backstories, the deeper meaning that comes together every time people sit down to enjoy a meal. So this place is for people who love to cook and love to eat, and it's my goal to make your dishes come alive with flavor. I talk food, health, wellness, wine, cocktails, travel, trends, fitness, and more, and I love to feed your soul, fuel your hunger, and satiate your appetite. So stay tuned and thank you for joining me this week because there is delicious conversation all throughout this hour. If you happen to have missed a show, you can find podcasts on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen and my website at chefjamie.com. All new will make you a better cook, I know. And I do hope that you'll follow on social at Chef Jamie Gwen. And with that said, let's dig in. This week's tutorial of sorts, uh, Chef's Technique, uh, inspiration that I like to kick off the show with, is all about beholding the meatball. Oh yes, a meatball is a thing of beauty when done right. And I thought I would share my meatball making secrets. It's the stuff that chefs don't tell you when you Ooh, and ah, over the meatball that arrives at the table. The one that's really soft and moist and it melts in your mouth. You know it. Oh yeah, it's that meatball. Well, when done right, meatballs are moist and they're tender and they pack a ton of flavor. Whether they're served on their own alongside crusty bread with lots of red sauce for dipping or on top of spaghetti, I think meatballs transport us to a very content place. And when done wrong, well, they can be dry and terrible and certainly not worthy of eating. The secret to great meatballs is plenty of other stuff besides the meat. Yes, choosing the right base is key, but I think you need to load it up with a few other ingredients that ensure flavor and moisture. Similar to a meatloaf, I think meatloaf needs the right flavoring. And this is not a high-end, perfect cut of steak where you want to leave it as simply as possible to permeate its natural flavor, just salt and pepper will do on a great ribeye. But a meatball, a meatball needs a little coaching, a little coaxing. It needs to, you know, sort of be massaged there. And so here is how you get into meatball heaven. The reality is that in a meatball, fat equals flavor. This is not the time, by the way, to skimp on fat. And I am all for turkey meatballs in lean and clean January, but this is not that meatball. This is a meatball of multiple meats and fabulous flavor that becomes your signature recipe that people ask you to bring to a party, that people come to your house to dine because you make the ultimate meatball. 
And some people think to buy an expensive cut of meat because the price indicates higher quality. But the truth is the rule does not apply to a meatball. Butchers will increase the price of a lean cut of meat, which of course we know is beneficial to your diet, uh, but they don't make for tender melt in your mouth meatballs. And I mean that leaner cut, of course. So here's how I make a meatball. I use a mix of ground beef, ground veal, and ground pork, and I call it a classic meatball. And the beef adds really meaty flavor and some heft. And it doesn't have to be so fatty, but it shouldn't be too lean. So choose accordingly. Now, the veal allows for this really luscious mouthfeel. If you are opposed to it, you can go 50-50 beef and pork because the pork, you guessed it, brings the fat. So, You need to give the meatballs some love. For a lighter, fluffier meatball, breadcrumbs and herbs are essential. I use panko, the Japanese breadcrumb, because I find that it soaks up more liquid, which creates air bubbles for the fat from the meat to soak through. And cheese is traditional, so I use Parmesan because it adds flavor through its saltiness. And then from there, you can add whatever you like to build more flavor. Fresh herbs, chopped onion, it's up to you. But the liquid is the key here. Milk or water or a mix of both, depending upon whether you like the Northern Italian style or the Southern Italian style. Uh, But the secret is that the liquid must be cold. And when I say cold, I mean ice cold. I add ice cubes to the measuring cup and I let it sit for a couple minutes, whether it's water or milk, until it is thoroughly chilled. Then I drain the ice cubes out or, you know, spoon them out per se and pour the liquid. This is why the cold liquid bonds with the fat in the meat and the fat stays solid before cooking. So if you keep the fat in the meatballs, you get a juicier, more delicious meatball. That's where you want it. And you want to remember not to overmix. The tighter you pack your meatballs, the firmer they will be. And then I like to cook my meatballs twice to create a crust. So I brown the meatballs in olive oil. You can do it on top of the stove or you can even coat them with olive oil and start them in the oven. Then I throw them into the sauce to finish cooking. Now, when it comes to a great meatball, as I said, don't overpack and do keep them cold. So you can refrigerate, for my best chef's tip, those formed meatballs for about 30 minutes before you go to cook them and you will elevate or upgrade even your existing meatball recipe, which might be just brilliant, just not as good as it could be. Now, remember, before you brown those bad boys, you want to cook a test patty to make sure that your meatballs are perfectly, properly seasoned. And that's a great chef's tip. We do this with anything like uh, falafel or uh, a burger meat or slider meat or meatballs or meatloaf mix. You take a little bit off the mixture in the bowl, you form a little teeny one inch patty and you cook it in a pan and then you taste it and adjust the salt, pepper and flavorings accordingly. Now, the last thing you want to do is form all the meatballs, of course, and find out later that they needed more salt, right? 
Uh, now, lastly, meatballs don't have to just be made from beef and pork. They can be made from ground chicken. I make a buffalo chicken slider that's killer, if I may say myself. In fact, I'm about to make it at Disney's California Food and Wine Festival uh, coming up this March, April. You can make turkey meatballs, of course, but my secret there is crushed pineapple from a can. It makes a really delicious Caribbean slider. But no matter the meatball, I will say, the traditional Italian meatball in red sauce with garlic bread makes me happy. And now that I've told you all my secrets to the perfect meatball... If you have a secret, please share, email me, Jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. And by the way, it is the bonus recipe this week, my best meatball recipe, and I'll gladly share it with you. Once again, just send me a note, jamie at chefjamie.com. Okay. Have you seen my new website, by the way? You can sign up for recipe updates and news, especially since I'm about to release a new electronic cookbook and I'd love to tell you all about it. Also, I would love for you to cruise with me this August 2020 on board the most delicious cruise line, Oceana. This is my seventh Chef Jamie cruise and we are embarking on an Alaskan vacation of a lifetime. You don't want to miss it. We are going to cook and eat and cook and eat together. Free airfare is included. Two private cooking classes on board with me, a private cocktail reception, on board gratuities, a delectable shore excursion in Juneau, all the best things, all included, in fact, on this Alaskan voyage, August of this year, 2020. I hope you'll come cruise with me to see the beauty of Alaska and eat the world together. Call 800-777-6540 for more info or visit chefjamie.com, please. Okay, do not touch your dial because we are sipping, oh, and savoring coming up because Paul K is here. He has tasted over 100,000 different wines and he is sharing his wine wisdom with you. We are sipping and savoring and drinking fine wine right after the break. Also, Dr. Anisha Patel is here, and she's going to teach you how to cut your sugar intake deliciously, in fact. So stay tuned. There is lots more delicious conversation coming up in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Cheers and welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're toasting new wine finds today with Paul Callum Carrion, and I am so thirsty for it. You see, Paul is the second generation president and owner of the original Wine of the Month Club, having taken over the business from his dad, Paul Sr., who still enjoys a great glass of wine at age 91. Paul Kay has tasted upwards of 100,000 wines, truly making him an expert. And his podcast, Wine Talks, shares insight into the wonderful world of wine. I love his deeply rooted appreciation for the grape. He believes that wine is 
one of the only creations in the world that can represent a region and say, this is who we are. So we're digging deep into wine trends for 2020, sharing his most recent tasting notes and dishing. Grab a glass because Paul Callum Carrion joins us live. I'm very glad to have you, Paul. Happy New Year and cheers to you. Thank you so much and Happy New Year. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Just oh. very excited to be here. Thank you. Very glad to have you. Uh, first off, tell us about your legacy. Your father started the original Wine of the Month Club. He was definitely a trailblazer. Well, it's kind of an interesting story, and I just sat with him on the podcast for about an hour and 15 minutes. I got a <laughs> snippet of it because I was a teenager at the time that this evolved, and it was, of course, during the time that California became you know, world, uh, recognized worldwide for their wine and sure. their contribution with the Taste of Paris. Hmm. In fact, Jim Barrett was our neighbor, and he used to come into the store quite frequently uh, right after he purchased Chateau Montalina. Amazing. But my dad was a pharmacist by trade. He had a small chain of six pharmacies, and the last one he bought included uh, this liquor store, kind of a, a beer, ice, and distilled spirits kind of place, and felt that the neighborhood could do with a nice wine shop. So he set out as an academic-type person to just study wine hmm. and became very good at it and eventually just started choosing wine for his customers wow. and put them on display. Hmm. And that became the beginning of the Wine of the Month Club. And what happened was in the 70s, many people left our town. They moved on. They retired and called my father and said, you know, Paul, just send me the stuff that you love. We love the wines. Just send us to us, and we'll, we'll just take them in our new town. And that's how it started. I think that really is. I mean, talk about grassroots, an amazing story to think of how far we've come today, right? I mean, I can have anything delivered within two hours, but there is something to be said for the history and the experience of a club that has lasted so long. Uh, with that said, you have tasted more than 100,000 wines, literally? Literally. It's, it's funny because uh, one of the things that happened at my dad's shop, he was like the salespeople would come in and they would like, he, one of the trailblazing things he did was he made them open wine and taste. You didn't do that in the 70s. If the guy brought you a Robert Mondavi Cabernet, you just put it on the shelf because it was Robert Mondavi Cabernet. Right. It had a name. Sure. Yeah. So my dad's like, no, I want to taste it. Huh. And so tasting day became Tuesday. And so every Tuesday, the vendors could come in. You could be a bottom fisher, wholesaler, importer, regular supplier. It didn't matter. Bring what you got. We'll open it and taste it together. And so he sort of set the stage for making sure everything that was in the store was tasted by him. Hmm. I didn't know any better. I bought the thing from him in 1988. He'll tell you I paid him a dollar. That's not true. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> he has this little story he likes to tell, but it's, it's well, it's partially true. But he, uh, I continued tasting on Tuesdays. I didn't know any better. So sure. still to this day, from 9 o'clock to 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, you get 15 minutes of fame, bring what you got, and I taste a lot of bad wine. I mean, a lot of bad wine to find the good ones. And it's, uh, it's a different approach than, let's say, a master of wine who's academic, chewing on the wine, wants to analyze it. Of course, we can do that. But we're looking at them differently. We're saying, oh, this is a $20 Cabernet or this is a $20 Pinot Noir. I just tasted another one that's 15 It's better. Hmm. And I've tasted ones that are 40 that are not as good. So that brings us to the ongoing and I think very important dinner party conversation, which is 
is there really a big difference between a $10 bottle of wine versus a $100 bottle of wine? And I will say, Paul, firsthand, I had an opportunity to go to Crush in Napa many years ago. Uh, For those that don't know, it is the height of harvest and when the grapes are being picked. And I will tell you, it is the most grueling, demanding, dirty job. And we should be paying far more than we do for a beautiful glass of wine. But lucky us, there are exceptional values for very good wines today. And I believe it depends on your palate and what you like to drink. But do you really see that much of a, of a difference between the really cost-effective bottles and those that are asking so much, I should say? That is a, it's a great question. I get it all the time. And if, if you've ever brown bagged uh, at a party, which I did recently, a wine that we found, a Merlot, that I sell for $12, one, or beat the competition I brought with me, which were more expensive wines. Hmm. But really, and you know this, because you've already, <laughs> you were toiling in the vineyard already. Wine starts in the vineyard. If you can't make good wine from bad grapes, but you certainly can make bad wine from good grapes. Isn't and so that you true? start with a decent grape, and then the winemaker can either make it work or not. And so, yes, in general, you know, there's going to be some quality differences from an absolute three ninety nine floor stack at a market versus, you know, Opus. Let's just take two radical, you know, extremes of the spectrum. Yes, but. There are a lot of many, many expensive wines that are out of balance. I tasted one uh, yesterday. Uh, just, uh, you know, nice wine to a certain extent, but out of balance and very expensive. And right behind it came a wine that, was, that would sell for 12 or $15. It had better balance. Hmm. So it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a cost-plus proposition. You don't make a widget for a dollar and sell it for 10 right. with wine. Um, and I think it's important in our industry to have the wines that represent pedigree and prestige because there are times where you want to pour them. You may not appreciate the dollar value in its character, but you can appreciate the expense and the moniker in having poured it. And there's a local restaurant I went to recently. The owner of the restaurant brought out a bottle of Opus. I was impressed. Wine was very good, but I was impressed he brought me an Opus. Yes, I would have to agree with you. There's a time and a place for it. And I think that spectrum is important. If you appreciate and value those higher priced wines with a brand name or moniker, like you said, I think it almost increases the appreciation for the lesser known or the lesser cost wines as well. And the exploratory sort of experience of finding the unknown or the paper, the brown bag wine that you mentioned that becomes the delight and surprise at a party. Thank goodness. And thank, thank goodness for that. Yes. Okay, Paul, you're making me thirsty. We'll take a quick break when we come back. More wine wisdom from Paul K.
Cheers and welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Paul Kay is here and we are sharing wine wisdom for 2020. Talk about the industry uh, or the state of the industry, I should say, if you would. Right now, we definitely have conversation brewing because of tariffs, uh, but there is a lot about sustainability, dry farming, uh, a lot of new terms. uh, You just touched on two very important things. The tariff is going to be problematic, but it'll go away. It happened uh, in reverse about 10 or 15 years ago where the French were taxing us. I had customers call and say, don't send me more French wines. I'm going to set with them. So that'll just evolve. That's a political issue. Uh, there are two main things, and you talked about one of them. The dry farm wines, the sustainable wines, organic. You know, it's not so new and it's not so revolutionary. Uh, many of the winemakers that come in to talk to me on, on wine talks have been farming organically for since the inception of their wineries. Sure. Why? Because their kids are playing in the vineyards. They don't want their kids scooping dirt and playing with the grass that's coated with pesticides. So right. a lot of the wines that you've had over the years were organic or biodynamic or at least sustainable, uh, regardless of its labeling. So They're finally being credited, though, or touted with the, the those attributes, I should say. I'll never forget, Paul, uh, being in a vineyard in Napa, watching kids of winemakers play, and the rows in between the grapevines having been planted with organic vegetables, radishes and tomatoes and all the goodness that comes from a farm intermingled with grapevines. And I will tell you, it was some of the most delicious, sweetest produce I had ever tasted. So there's something beautiful about the progress and the fact that we are, I think, uh, highlighting the virtues of the farming procedure when it comes to wine today. You're right on it. Since you're in the food industry, you know already that uh, particularly a biodynamic farm like Blue Hills, yes, uh, they're going to plant these cross plants. In other words, they're going to re, re uh, nut- nutritionalize a word. Yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> yes, they're going to re-nutritionalize the ground that they're planting, and, and because they can walk through the through a farm, a vineyard, and say, "Oh, we're we're getting dandelions here. Then we must be short on nitrogen or magnesium or whatever the." nutrient is and they cross plant by adding uh, radishes or uh, in fact one of the wineries Hurst Hurst winery near Hurst Castle mm-hmm. plants radishes in their vineyard to supply the nutrients for the next crop of grapes hmm. so it's a very important a very important part of the biodynamic movement yes. there's there's two parts of it though that that are interesting to me the, the wines are brighter for sure they have a fresher character are they better for you? That's the part that I don't think I subscribe to necessarily. However, um, there's also this very rustic movement, which I don't. I mean, I don't get it because I have a hard time drinking them, and I want to feel something when I drink a wine. I want to be ethereal. I want to relax. I want to discuss whatever mood I'm in. I don't want to have to muscle it down because. I think I'm doing myself a favor by drinking biodynamic wines that are so rustic. And there's many of those. There are lots of options, lots of differences, Paul. Natural wine, the newest term. Can you define it, please? Well, I did a little paper on LinkedIn about natural wine. Yes. I did some research, and there's no such thing. Hmm. So uh, the feds, you know, the FDA has defined not even natural food. They've defined natural flavorings and, and artificial flavorings 
and they have a specific definition. But the word natural, so if you buy a sleeve of bagels that says these are natural, there, it's, there's a presumption that what's in those foods and wine uh, should be there. In other words, nothing was added that would be un, unfamiliar to that product or, let's say, a loaf of bread or a bottle of wine. Sure. But there's nobody watching that. However, with organic, there is, uh, there's different thresholds, both the European and American, and then there's also the biodynamic movement uh, that prescribes certain things as well as sustainability. So, uh, but natural itself is sort of a misnomer. And I love, I love the question because uh, I love the answer. <laughs> yes, I like it too. One of the things that's interesting about the natural wine movement, and I, the, there are 100, approximately 100 uh, additives to wine that you're allowed to put in California. So if you're a vineyard in California and you want to add something, there's about 100 different products. Mm-hmm. Now, for instance, if you want to sweeten your wine a little bit, you can add sugar, but it can't be C&H sugar. It must be grape sugar. It right, we call that drive. we call that juicing. Not to interrupt you, but we call that right. juicing in the industry, right? Sure, it's juicing. And so, yeah. but what's unnatural about it if the if the sugar came from a previous vintage of grapes, grapes. as well as right. as color? Uh, there's a product called Mega Red. It's like this little vial with an eyedropper, and it it can turn any orange uh, prematured wine into a brilliant magenta. And mm. again, it's I don't know what's unnatural about it because it's extracted from grape skins. So I'm wrestling with that myself personally. No, I I understand the challenge because in the food world, as you alluded to, we have these specifications that are often not backed by uh, FDA uh, or otherwise. And so you... I believe, are best armed with knowledge. And if you're in the know, then you know what to look for and what you're getting. And so whether it's sustainable, biodynamic, dry farmed, natural or otherwise, I'm going to put you on the spot again and ask you to highlight a a few new favorites, Uh, whether it's by uh, Vintner or Winemaker or just your newest fabulous find i would love to know what are you drinking well okay here's a that's a great question since i have a wedding at my home uh well let's see this weekend yes this weekend <laughs> i just my and my daughter is a boulanger from new york she studies french she worked in paris uh, i speak french my father speaks french so we decided to take a french angle on this this leads into your, the answer of your question oh i love that uh, our newest my newest fascination is is Burgundy, so Pinot Noir, and Sh- Pinot Noir mainly, but Chardonnay as well, and very specific tiny vineyards throughout Burgundy. Now, here's the interesting thing, because you're talking about dry farming and, and natural wines. Burgundy, as a region in France, is dry farmed. It has to be. It's by law. You can't use water. So this, and this is from the monks from the, tw- you know, the 1200s. They've been making wine like this. So what's unique about it? What's new about it? Nothing. That's, that's the way they're supposed to do it. And what does that do? It forces the grapevines to go deep into the soil and extract from the soil the character that's going to represent that wine in that area. And it just so happens in Burgundy, there's such fragmented uh, soil types that there's very small parcels of really interesting wines. And it's a complicated study. Uh, the wines are fascinating. So needless to say, I'm pouring Louis Jadot, a wine from around Bonne, uh, Pinot Noir that mm. just knocks my socks off, and it's, mm. I'm, I started reading a book that was written in 1970, 
so its history of Burgundy is very granular going backwards. And it's almost confusing. It's so interesting. But that's my thing. Very Burgundy's fa- right now. Very fascinating. Fun. Yeah. And the Louis Jadot, reasonably priced. Yeah. He has a, they, I think they have about 300 SKUs or something, but they go from um, Burgundy, you know, Burgogne, Pinot Noir Rouge. Yes. You know, that's just the entry levels, which are pretty good. They are. Up to some of the premium vineyards in the area. And by the way, Burgundy, because Louis Jadot is a negociant, that's really the premise of Burgundian wines, whereas if you go to Bordeaux, there's a lot of chateau, and you have chateau this and domain that, but uh, in Burgundy, the negociant was the, was the purveyor of wine for most of its history, so it's kind of fun to, to track that. Yeah, I, I love what you find fun, Paul. <laughs> yeah. I, I really do. Um, can it's you, a good life, you know? It's a good life. Can, <laughs> can you name um, a, a white wine find of late or a particular grape varietal that you find fascinating, maybe on trend for 2020? Sure. The, you know what's happening? Uh, the northern uh, Spanish whites, the Albarino. I love Albarino. Oh, with yeah. anything grilled, bring it. It's really catching on, and there's some very interesting uh, characters evolving because they're paying more attention to them. Yes. There's also the Falanginas from Italy. Uh, just, mm. You know, there's some really fruit-forward, and then they're great with shellfish because uh, they got a lean, crisp finish. Uh, it's just that, I think, frankly, and he asked this question earlier, the Italian whites, Yes. because there's like 2,000 different grapes in Italy, and if you go to Umbria and you get some of these... Uh, some of these ancient grapes that are being revived, you end up with character that you've never experienced before. Hmm. Um, we one need of the to. That's happening. Go ahead. No, you go ahead because we need to dig deeper into this. I, I'd like you to come back, and you haven't even left yet. Uh, but I'd like you to come back next month. I'd like to pick a region, and I'd like to dig deep into your knowledge. The original Wine of the Month Club has become America's trusted source of unique and compelling wines. And you can learn more about Paul's picks and find his podcasts at wineofthemonthclub.com. You can also follow on social, Wine of the Month Club, and you will hear him here committing in 2020 to upping your wine game. Paul K is going to give you that insight. Paul, it was a pleasure and I can't wait to have you back. Thank you for sharing your passion. My pleasure. See you soon. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Feeding your soul in your radio, Chef Jamie Gwen here. Studies show that children today consume at least three times the recommended daily limit of sugar. And the culprits are not the usual suspects like candy, soda, and cookies. Because added sugar is everywhere, in yogurt and bottled salad dressing and boxed mac and cheese and pre-sliced bread. So with all this sugar lurking, how can you make quick, easy, flavorful, low-sugar meals that the whole family will love? In Half the Sugar, All the Love, the new book release that, uh, by the way, is getting a ton of wonderful attention, healthy food advocate Dr. Anisha Patel and award-winning author Jennifer Tyler Lee debunk the sugar myths, and they're sharing practical insight and recipes for cutting your sugar intake. 
Dr. Anisha Patel is the Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Stanford University and the leader of Stanford's Pediatric Sugar Research Program, and she is here to answer all of your sweet queries. Very glad to have you, Dr. Patel. Welcome, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Thanks <laughs> Thank so much. you. Congratulations on uh, the instant success of the book. It's really an incredible read. I started you know, flipping pages and found myself... Uh, very much absorbed in the evidence-based nutrition that you share. Can you debunk some sugar myths, please? Sure. Um, do you have any specific ones? Uh, I, <laughs> I, I do. So, um, okay, there is a, a deeper scoop on sugar. Um, honey is not healthier. Artificial sweeteners are not the solution. Share, if you would, just some research. I don't think we realize how much sugar all of us actually consume. Just to kind of set the premise here, added sugar is sugar that we're talking about for this book. So it's not sugar that's inherent in the food. So, for example, you know, milk has lactose, which is a type of sugar, or fruit has fructose. We're not talking about those types of sugars. We're talking about sugar that you're adding to foods or beverages when you're cooking them at home or that food companies are adding to those products. Um, And so a lot of times um, people are thinking that these natural sweeteners like honey, agave, or maple syrup are actually healthier options to granulated sugar. And so when they're making a recipe, they'll sub out um, the granulated sugar and use one of those natural sweeteners instead. However, we do know that um, honey, agave, the maple syrup, and other um, natural sweeteners are processed similarly in the body and lead to the similar types of health concerns um, in the end, which are, you know, obesity, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, even fatty liver disease, which is one of the leading contributors to liver failure and transplantation in the U.S. currently. So um, these sugars need to be accounted for. So when you're thinking of your daily limits and what um, we're recommending that you consume per day, so for women, it's uh, six teaspoons, children also six Um, but there's some wiggle room there for the ages. And then also for um, men, it's nine teaspoons. You got to think about the honey you're consuming, the maple syrup and all these other natural sugars as well. Right. More than just the white sugar that comes from the bag or that you expect from a muffin or a piece of cake, you call some of these sneaky sugars. So when you're reading the label, let's say you have a favorite store-bought gourmet tomato sauce. What should we look for? It is challenging to figure out how much sugar is in different products for a number of reasons. One is the food label currently that's on the back of the product, also called a nutrition facts label, um, has a line for sugars. And you can look at it, and it's in grams. And what we recommend for people in the U.S. is teaspoons. So when you get a grams, you're not really sure what to do with that information. But in the book, we explain that a rough estimate is to take the grams and divide it by four, and that'll give you the teaspoon. So like, let's say there's 16 grams of sugar, added sugar, um, in a product, then you would take the 15 and divide it by, uh, 16 and divide it by four to get um, four teaspoons. However, um, one problem currently is the sugars that's on the Nutrition Facts label. It includes the natural sugars as well, so you don't really know what percentage of that sugar is added sugar versus, like, the healthier sugar that's a part of the product, like the lactose, for example, in the milk. Um, and so currently it's really challenging. Um, there will be a new Nutrition Facts label, and some companies are already doing this, but there should be added sugar listed on the label moving forward, and so that'll help consumers. Another quick and dirty way is to look at the ingredients, and if you see something that's listed as a sugar in the ingredient list and it's kind of 
one, two, three, or four in terms of the ingredient list, you know it's like one of the top ingredients, and so you really want to try to avoid that product. Um, Tomato sauce, for example, should have a little bit of sugar from the fruit and the tomato, but it probably isn't that much. And so if there is sugars listed, a large percentage of that sugar is probably added sugar. When you say healthy sugar, how do you define that? It does depend on your current health conditions. So diabetics, for example, you know, can't take in carbohydrates um, of all types. So a lot of times they're eating whole grains because fiber is um, helping them process the sugar in a healthier way. So you really got to take your own personal health concerns into consideration. But when I'm talking about general public, children, families, when I'm saying healthy sugars, um, I'm talking about lactose, which is in milk. So if you were to drink a cup of milk, it didn't have any sugar in it that we added. So not chocolate milk, it's just plain milk. That's healthy sugar in that milk. The book is called Half the Sugar, All the Love. And the book is all a buzz. It is an eye-opening, informative, and practical guide for busy parents, the first of its kind, filled with expert advice and delicious kid-tested recipes the whole family will love. Uh, Written by Jennifer Tyler Lee and Anisha Patel, MD. You'll find the book already highly rated on Amazon. Learn more because you wouldn't feed your child a candy bar for breakfast. Now, would you? Less sugar in every meal. That's a good resolution for 2020. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of food and wine information that abounds. I hope that you'll tune in every weekend, and I do thank you for listening. But before you go, let me leave you with my last bite. This recipe is my newest food addiction. It's a creamy and almost guilt-free salad dressing that is utterly scrumptious. And I've been putting it on everything from salads to sandwiches to pita chips and more. It's really low calorie, so you know you have to make it now because it is brimming with flavor. It's bright with lemon juice and zest and herbaceous from basil, or you could use cilantro if you like. And it has this irresistibly creamy texture. Greek yogurt is the base. I use lemon, agave or honey, some basil, some extra virgin olive oil, and I will give you all the measurements and the entire recipe, in fact, posted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram now. It is my five-ingredient, guilt-free, creamy dressing. Once again, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Chef Jamie Gwen. Please become a friend and a fan. And check out chefjamie.com where there are recipes galore and information so that you can come cruise with me in 2020. Until next weekend, I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.